Sundays. God, this is not a checklist item for us. This is not just something that we do because it's our tradition. It's not just something that we do because that's what we do when we go to church. But we worship because you are good. We worship because you are holy. But we worship you because there is no one better. We worship you because there is no one more worthy of our worship than you. That's why we worship you. But we give you everything that we have this morning. And we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you for a warm place to worship. We thank you for the fact that you are here with us. We thank you for the fact that you're near. You're not far off. You're not distant. You're not apathetic. You care about us. You're close and you're near. Amen. Good to see you guys, man. What a blessing it is. Thank you so much, Grant, for leading us worship, and thank you so much, Lord, for bringing him here to uh, bring that spirit to the church of worship. Uh, we are starting a brand new series through the book of James. I'm, I'm very excited about this. I'm maybe a little more excited I'm not wearing an ugly sweater anymore on stage, uh, but I'm very excited about the James series as we jump into it, a faith that works. We'll get into that in a minute. Uh, if you want to start opening your Bibles to the book of James, uh, we're going to be going through this over the next 12 weeks, to be honest, from now until spring break, going through just systematically the book of James to understand it. it. It is a great, great book for just how to practically live out your faith. If you've ever wondered, man, I don't know what it looks like to be a Christian, I don't know how to practically do this, James is your book. It is a gritty, gritty book that just kind of walks you through. And, and so one of the challenges, I'm I, oh, getting a little ahead there, looky there, uh, one of the things that we're going to challenge you with as a church is this, I hope you join this journey with me, is every week I'd love for you to, to do as I do and, and read through the entire book of James. It's five, five chapters long, and so you could miss a couple days, but if you did that over the course of the next 12 weeks, you become so familiar with it that it'd be something that we'll talk about later that just you can come back to on a regular basis. And so I encourage you to do it. If you want to read it in one sitting, you can read it in about 30, 40 minutes. It's not a long book, but very, very great, great book. So James will uh, be in chapter one here in a bit. Um, how many of you ever read the book of James or are familiar with it? Some of you guys familiar with it a little bit? Well, to help us understand, appreciate James, uh, the book a little bit better, I kind of showed you a little bit, but I want to uh, ask you, who is this person? You got that first picture? Hopefully. Who, who is that person right there? Uh, if you know who it is, real quick, the person next to you, whisper who you think that is. Uh, if you are my age and down, you know who this is. If you're older than me, no offense, you're going, I have no idea who that is. And, and, and I, I've just segregated the church into two separate groups right here. Alan, don't give me the nod uh, right there to say, yes, you have. Okay. Uh, uh, if you don't know who this is, th this is Drake. He, he is a, a rap artist, a hip-hop artist, uh, and, and he's probably the, one of the most influential uh, people in rap, hip-hop culture in the past decade, to be honest. As a matter of fact, if you go on his Instagram, whatever account, he has like 100 million followers that follow him. Has, has, has a, has, whether you like it or not, a profound influence on pop culture. And if you don't know who he is, don't worry about it. You're not alone. Go to the next picture. 
Uh, the people right here had no idea who he was either. This was at a Thunder game, actually, uh, back in November. Drake was at a Thunder game, and they were playing his music over the loudspeaker, and they zoomed in on him, and, and they had the camera there, and these people next to him look at him and go, I think they're looking at you, and they, they looked at Drake and said, are you famous or something? <laughs> Drake, Drake just started laughing, took a picture of right here, his way he posted on Instagram, said, my new parents right here, and he said, yeah, I... I he didn't say like this, but like, yeah, I'm kind of a big deal. You know, people know me. Uh, they had no idea who he is. And I don't expect you to have any know or really care anything. But whether you like it or not, this guy has had a huge influence on our culture. He's played a huge influence, whether you like it or not. The generation coming up, they're raised listening to his music. Pop culture has been raised and influenced by it. Why do I tell you all this? Because James, in much the same breath, has had a, what was a huge, huge influence on the early church. Many of us don't realize that. We think it's just another book of the Bible. Like, you may not realize this, but he's had as much, if not more, of an influence even than Peter and Paul did. In the early church culture, he was the guy that everyone looked to to say, well, what should we be doing? If you don't believe me, you, can, you don't have to turn there, but just reference, you can go to Acts chapter 15, one of the earliest church council meetings they had. It was after they decided to say, you know what, the, the, the gospel is now for the Gentile people. In other words, people who weren't Jewish descent, who didn't, weren't born a Jew. And so in the early church, they're having this huge argument on whether or not this gospel message, this, this message of Jesus Christ was meant for Gentiles as well. And they're arguing about it. And James is the one who stands up in the meeting and says this. He says, listen, you know, I, I have a lot of feelings about this, but I feel like this message is, and we should not make this message complicated for them. And he says, I do think they should do certain things. And more or less, the meeting stops. It says right after that in the text that more or less they take his word and say, all right, start spreading words. James has spoke. This is what it is. James has a profound influence on the early church. People respected him. So, so to appreciate the book of James and what's going on, we have to say this. Who is James? Who is this guy? Well, why is he so influential? Because if not, you're going to look at him like Drake and go, yeah, I don't really care who that guy is. But he, he plays a huge influence. And so if you have your Bibles, let's, let's look at James chapter 1. We're just going to read verse 1 right now, just to intro, because if you, if you miss this part, you're not going to appreciate a lot of things in the letter that come later. You're just going to read right over stuff, and it's going to make no sense. So James chapter 1, verse 1, just read with me. It says, this letter is from James. Pretty clear drive. Who's it by? James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I am writing to the 12 tribes Jewish believers scattered abroad, greetings. Now, now we're going to pick up more, but I just want to intro and understand. So, so we're going to address some real quick things. Who is this? Why is he writing this? What's going on? What's the purpose of the letter to appreciate a lot of it? Uh, well, as we can see real quickly, it says it's written by who? James. That's pretty quick and cut and dry right there. There's a lot of debate on which James this was, but the one most scholars come to believe is this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, he was related to Jesus. He, in other words, they shared the same mother, but obviously because of what we just studied over Christmas, a different father, all right? He is the half-brother of Jesus. Why is that so profound? Because of what he says next. Let me read it. This is a letter from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ. Listen, I don't know what relationship you have with your brothers and sisters, 
But no way in God's green earth would I ever look at my brothers and sisters and say, I'm a slave to you, whatever you want. I mean, the only way that would happen is they would have to be God. And you know what? If there's any more proof you need in entire scripture, whether or not Jesus Christ was the son of God, he made his own brother call him God. And his own brother said, yes, I'm a slave to you. This is who I give my life to. And he submits to him, which is such a fascinating thing. As a matter of fact, the word there for slave is bondservant, someone who willingly sacrificed, gives himself over to be a slave. And he says, I'm this of Jesus. And he's writing to who? It says to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. Now, now we'll get to the 12 tribes parts, but let me talk about the scattered. Well, what's going on? What does he mean by scattered? It means those who have been dispersed, those who are being persecuted. Most scholars believe this takes place sometimes right after Acts chapter 8, where you have the stoning of Stephen. You have the church in Jerusalem, it's growing, it's doing well, things are going well, and Stephen, one of the first deacons of the early church, stands up and preaches a message not too far different than what Paul did in Acts, or Peter did in Acts chapter 2. But this time, instead of people going, oh yeah, let's get saved, they get angry and kill him. They, they stone him to death. And the church gets scared, persecution breaks out, and people begin scattering all over. And what's amazing about that is it forces the gospel message to start going all over creation, all over the ends of the earth, as Jesus told them it would happen. Most people believe this is who he's talking to, those who are scattered from this persecution that's taking place. And this is such an important thing because you'll see this tone come up time and time again in this letter persecution is following those that are living out their faith. Especially as we read today, that, that is such an important note that we'll understand to context what's going on. He, he writes, he says, the 12 tribes scattered by The 12 tribes is a reference to Jewish population, those who are of Jewish descent. Which raises the question, why, why isn't he mentioned Gentiles? Why is he ostracized those who are not Gentile faith? Like, why are they not part of this letter? But most scholars believe because this actually took place before Acts chapter 15, before the Gentiles' gospel message was taken to them. As a matter of fact, most scholars believe this is one of the first letters, first books written in the New Testament. And it's important to understand because he writes this letter to tell them, hey, listen, you believe in Jesus, but this is how you live it out, practically speaking. And so he writes this, and what happens from that is everyone takes James' letter, passes around, and becomes a legalistic way of thinking and saying, well, we have to do exactly as James do, lives us out. And so Paul, when he writes his letter, goes back to a different type, saying, hey, listen, what James said is good, but understand, don't forget, you were saved by grace. And so every single one of Paul's letters you read, if you read, he starts out with this whole argument of why you are saved by grace, what Jesus has done, not of you, all this sort of stuff. And then at the end of his letter, he unpacks, now because of that, do this. It's important to understand because if you read Paul and James, you almost can see where they almost contradict one another. And you say, well, which is right? As a matter of fact, we'll explore that later, how James, one of his key things is like faith without works is dead. If you don't Practice your faith, live out your faith, and your faith is useless. And Paul over and over says the complete opposite. He says your, your you know, faith is not saved by deeds, it's by grace alone. And we'll look more into that, what's going on. There's lots of Old Testament references that go on here. And so, and so that's who wrote it, that's the audience. And the other thing is, well, what genre of a book is this? Obviously, it's a letter written to people, but most scholars would say this is a, what we call New Testament wisdom literature. It's considered wisdom literature. If you've ever read James, it's, it's kind of an all-over-the-place kind of book, right? You've read it and like, man, your train of thought just seems to be scattered. All, and you can pull stuff together, but it seems to be a little scattered. 
I love what one uh, commentator, Constable Notes, said about this. He said, James is difficult to organize and outline because the author frequently shifts from one set of issues to another. He says the letter bears similarities to Proverbs and other wisdom literatures. If you've ever read Proverbs the same way, like you read it, it's just a bunch of sayings and can seem all over the place. James is considered wisdom literature, so it seems the same way. That the theme you'll see throughout the book of James is this. It is just a faith that works. How, how do I practically live out my faith? As a matter of fact, James chapter 2, verse 17, which we'll get to in a later day, is, is I'd say a key verse where he says this. He says, see, so see, your faith by itself isn't enough, or faith without works is dead. Unless it produces good deed, it is dead and useless. Well, like, understand this. James was so gritty and so practical in nature that one of the early reformers, Martin Luther, who, if you remember, the 95 Theses reformed the early church whenever the Catholic faith was going to a place where they were going way off track. Martin Luther almost questioned whether James should even be a book of the Bible. Because he was so heavily about grace, he said, this is so much works-based that I'm not sure I can, I can support this. And I, he, he questioned whether James was actually a biblical text. I love what uh, one person said, said Luther's problem was that he thought James was writing about becoming a Christian. In other words, justification. James was really writing to Christians about how to live the Christian life. He's talking about sanctification. And when you look at Paul and James, Paul, Paul's looking at the root of salvation. Like, how do I get saved? James is looking from the other end at the fruit of salvation. How do you know if you're saved? How, how can you tell if this is real or not? Do you understand? That's a lot, and we'll come back to that again. But it, it's so important to understand because if you miss who wrote it, what's going on, the persecution, what, all this sort of stuff, it, it begins to get confusing. But if you keep those in mind, it makes sense. So if you have your Bibles, open with me to James chapter 1. Let's read verses 1 through 12 is where we're going to read through today. It says this. It says, this letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad. Greetings, dear brothers and sisters. When troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, now if you need wisdom, like ask our generous God, and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. But when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver, for a person who, with divided loyalty, is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Like their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they're unstable in everything they do. Believers who are poor have something to boast about, for God has honored them. And those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. Like they will fade away like little flowers of the field. The hot sun rises and the grass withers, and the little flower droops and falls, and its beauty fades away. In the same way, the rich will fade away with all of their achievements. God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Seems a little all over the place, but let's pull this together to such a straight point. And here's my big idea I want to take from this it, it, that hopefully will make sense when we kind of get through this. The big idea from just this text alone, I'd say this, is to pass the test or trials of life, you must be different. Just, just fly out, you must be different. 
In this first little section, like verses 2 through 4, I'd say this. You need a different outlook on hardships. You need to have a different perspective on difficulties in life. Look at what he starts out with. He says this. He says, dear brothers and sisters, in verse 2, when troubles come your way, I don't know if there's anything more encouraging me for me as a Christian believer than that statement right there. He doesn't say if troubles, like possibly troubles. He says when troubles come. Can I say this? Troubles, trials, difficulties in life are a reality of life, even for Christian people. You will go through difficult times. Just because you've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, that Christ has given himself for you, does not mean you're freed from difficult times. If any more so, it means that you're going to have to endure difficult times. Like, you will go through difficult times. It is a fact of life. I've been in church ministry work for 17 years of my life, and I have yet to meet one person who has escaped difficulties in some different way, shape, or form. They will come. And as a matter of fact, he says what? When difficulties come, what does he say? He says, consider it an opportunity. He says this, when you face trials, trials serve a purpose. They have a purpose in your life. When you face difficulties, they serve a purpose. What do they do? He says, well, it tests your faith. It tests our faith to see if it's real, to see if it's genuine. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul would say this. He said, test, test yourself to see if you are of the faith. It sees whether there's merit. It's about a commitment test. If you've been through college or you're going through college right now, you know they have classes called weed-out classes for freshmen. They are designed and implemented to be difficult than just about anything else you'll take for the sole purpose to more or less weed you out. If you are not fit, capable to make it through college, they want to get you out of the way so you can save your parents and yourself a lot of money and heartache and headache. And you have a lot of freshmen quit because they purposely try to do it, try to weed you out and say, listen, are you fit for this or not? Are you really meant for this or not? When we go through difficulties, God tests us. God sends us through trials because why? Because it tests our faith and it produces stuff. What does it say? He says, for you know faith is tested. Your endurance, endurance has a chance to grow or you learn to persevere. Like trials, when they come in our life, teach us, they develop us, they stretch us to our limits, they teach us how to persevere, they develop maturity in us. I love, if you know anything about Army or stuff, they have a group called the Green Berets, which are like the elite of the elite people. And they serve at the top of their rank and stuff, and they're, they're the special forces. But to make it to the Green Berets, they send them through one of the trainings they call it, which is two weeks of hell. That's what they call it. And the whole purpose is just more to test their limits. And I love it, it says this, it says they need to know that when they put them out in the front lines, they can complete the task given to them. They won't quit. They want to know that what you're capable of. You see, God allows trials in our life to stretch us, to groom us, to push us to a place to where we know that when we go through stuff, we don't have to depend on anything else, and we're capable of making it. He wants to know, hey, listen, you need to know what you're made of. I don't know if you've ever been through a difficult time, but the first thing I do is, man, I need this. I need this. God, would you just give me a break? Would you do this? And God's saying, no, I've given you all you need in me, and I need you to know what you're capable of. I need you to know what you can do. How often have we begged for deliverance? God, would you deliver me out of this? God, would you just give me some reprieve? Man, finance, if you could do this, man, if you could just take it. And God's like, no, I need you to keep going because I want you to see what you're made of, and more so, I want you to see what I'm made of. I love what N.T. Wright, one of the theologians, said this. He said, those who follow Jesus the Messiah are not simply supposed to survive. They're supposed to count, to, to make a difference in the world. So, so if God is allowing you to go through a trial, understand this. He is preparing you for something of significance. He sees something in you that is worthy to invest and develop. 
I think of my high school basketball coach that used to run me and used to beat me to death in basketball and used to let guys just maul me in the paint in basketball. I get so frustrated. I'd say, Coach, this is not legal. You can't do it. And he would just harp on me. I remember one time saying, Coach, like, why are you so hard on me? He says, because, Eric, I see something in you. Be scared when I stop being hard on you. When I quit pushing you, when I quit testing you, it means suddenly I don't see anything capable anymore and I've given up on you. When you go through difficult times, there is something about you that God sees as, listen, I believe in this person. I believe that they're capable of what they're going through. We, we don't get to escape difficult times. I hate to tell you that. You know why? Because two things. One, we live in a fallen world. And while Christ redeemed us, he hasn't fully redeemed the world until he comes back again. And so we have to continue to live with the consequences of sin that still are there. Not just that, we are still fallen people. While Christ has redeemed us, we still personally fight with a sinful nature that we, our old habits are in. Next week, we'll talk about temptations and what that has for us. And as long as those things are in our life, God has to continue not just to deliver us from the world, but teach us how to survive through the world and be a light in it. And so for us, we need to come to places and say this. We need to have a different outlook on our hardships. When difficulties come, it's not, God, why do you hate me? It's like, God, what are you trying to do in me? It's not coming and saying, God, why, but maybe, God, What? The next thing I'd say is this, and you see in verse 5 today, is you need to have a different source for advice. Look what he says, verse 5 through 8. He says, if you need wisdom, what a weird shift, right? Like, it's your pure joy when you go through difficult times. Now, now, if you need wisdom, he says, just ask God, and he will generously give to you wisdom. He, he will not rebuke you for asking, but when you ask, you must believe in him, ultimately. Like, what does wisdom have to do with trials, where are you going at, James? Why are you suddenly shifting what's going on? Do you know what the difference between wisdom and knowledge is? There's a huge difference. Because he says when you need wisdom, just ask God and he'll give it to you. I love what, there's a Bible uh, Christian resource called gotquestions.org, and they had a, a quote on this I love. They said this, wisdom and knowledge are both recurring themes in the Bible. They're related, but they're not synonyms. He says, the dictionary defines wisdom as this. It's the ability to discern or judge what is true or right or lasting. While knowledge, on the other hand, is information gained through experience, reasoning, or acquaintance. Like, knowledge can exist without wisdom, but not the other way around. Like, one can be knowledgeable without being wise. An example is like this. Knowledge is knowing how to use a gun. Wisdom is knowing when to use it and when to keep a holster. There's a big difference in the two. And so when we come to God, God is saying this, like if you need wisdom on how to apply the truth I've given to you, I'm going to tell you how to do it. If you've ever been in a difficult time, you say, God, man, help me, help me, and you have that, that one way to go, and you're like, not that way. We have to have faith that God's saying, listen, you need to trust me in how to live this out and to do it. You need to trust me and then go and source of wisdom. It's about how to apply God's worth and truth to your life. Which is important to understand this. It implies that you need to have a prior knowledge of God's word so you can apply it. That's why I say, man, it's so powerful for you to be reading through the book of James so when difficulties come, you can go to those things and say, you know, I remember God's word said this. And when God says, listen, this, this is how you live it out right now, having faith to do that, to, to carry it out, to carry it to fruition. It's the importance of studying and knowing God's word. But, but did you notice the but? He gives in there. He says, but, in verse 6, when you ask, be sure that your faith is in God alone. You must put faith in God to apply what he reveals to you. 
I find in my life when I go through difficult times, I'm saying, God, what do I need to do? What do I do? I know what I need to do, but I don't want to do that, right? God, that, there's got to be another way. There's got to be a plan B, right? It's like the old joke I know I've said before where a guy fell off the cliff and he's hanging on by a root stem for his dear life. He cries out there, God, God, save me. Would you save me? And to his surprise, God calls out, says, I'm here. And he's like, God, save me. He goes, I will, but you've got to do what I ask. He goes, anything. I'll do anything you ask. He goes, let go. And the man hanging by the branch says, is anybody else up there? It's the same with God. When God comes and says, hey, here's how you live this out. This is how you apply knowledge. You must have faith to carry it out. He says, those that don't, those that don't, what do they look like? He says, those who do not, or sorry, he says, do not waver. He says, because a person with divided loyalty is unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Like such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Why? Because their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they're unstable in everything they do. Like faith and wisdom is like peanut butter and jelly. I love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I don't like peanut butter alone. I don't like jelly alone. But you put them together, man, it's a magical ingredient right now. I can do three things in my house. I can make cookies, I can make pancakes, and I can make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich like no one else's business. Listen. Faith and wisdom are like PB&J. You, you, when you get them together, suddenly there's something magical about it. If you don't like PB&J, I'm going to pray for salvation for you today right now. Here's the thing, man. You have to learn to live it out. The reality is when we have faith without wisdom, when we have faith without wisdom, we're just passionate fools. We're passionate about stuff, but we have no idea what to be passionate about. You're the people who are just those people who are crazy about Christ, but have no idea what God's Word actually says. And they're doing crazy stuff, and you're like, this isn't even in Scripture. What are you doing? But at the same time, listen, when you have wisdom without faith, you're just a hypocrite. You know what you should do. You can quote God's word inside and out, but you have no idea how to live it out, or you refuse to live it out. And he says both of these people, he says in verse 8, are unstable in everything they do. And it's true, isn't it? When you refuse to follow through what God lays on your heart, you find yourself unstable. And so when you ask, you need to have faith and be faithful. And so we, we need to have a different source of advice. Listen, again, our questions to God are not coming and saying, God, why are you doing this? Why is this? God, God tells us, hey, listen, I, I could tell you, but you wouldn't even understand if I told you. And so our questions need to change. God, what do you want me to do with this? I'm going through a difficult time. Like, how, how do you want me to navigate this? And God gives every believer the gift of the Holy Spirit inside their heart to guide and direct them, say, that, that simple nudging that you know, man, I feel like I should do something here. It's that guiding from God to say, hey, live this out and do it. It's funny, as a father, I do everything I can to protect my kids from difficulties, but in my life, if I look where I've grown and have become the best of what I am today, it's because of those difficulties I went through. And as a loving father, sometimes I need to allow my kids to go through those same difficulties because I understand it grooms them, it develops them. And so you need to have a different outlook on hardships. You need to have a different source for advice. And the last thing you see in verse 9 through 12 is this. You need to have a different reward worth chasing. Look at verse 9 through 12, what he says. He says, believers who are poor have something to boast about, for God has honored them. What, what are you talking about, James? Then he says in verse 10, and those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them, for they will fade away like flowers. Like again, you have to go back to the context of what's going on to appreciate what's going on here. 
What did I say was going on? People are being persecuted. The church is being scattered. Why? Because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Here, it's not necessarily about money. Here, they're having a financial struggle because they're publicizing their faith. People in this time and right now who are living out their faith are being ostracized. And if people know you're a Christian, they're not going to come and do business with you. They're not going to come and support you. And so what happens? Your finances, every aspect of your life is struggling. What, what about those who are wealthy? It means what? It means they're not living out their faith in public. They're hiding it. And so right now, it has nothing to do with about wealth and finances. It's about comfort and discomfort. It's about, I don't want to be discomfortable. I don't want to give up this sort of state. Money's not the real issue here. Their reward is about comfort and money. They're a greater reward than God. And they've chosen those things. And so because they live out their faith, if you live out your faith, you're finding yourself poor. And he's like, listen, consider yourself lucky if you're poor. Why? Because you can boast. Because you can say, hey, listen, because I've lived out my faith, I'm dealing with these circumstances. And those who are wealthy, everyone knows why they're wealthy right now. It's because they've hidden their faith. It would have been a very visible thing. Now, now for me and you, our struggle may be different. But the reality is this. Sometimes in avoiding discomfort, we sometimes reject Christ, don't we? I don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't want people to know this. And, and I'm a, I want best of both worlds. And you want best of all of the above. And you can't have your toe in all the water. For some of you, it may be popularity. For some of you, it may be sports. Some of you, it may be jobs. Some of you, it may be relationships. You want the best of everything, and yet you don't get anything. And so we have to have a different reward worth chasing. And so what's the reward he's talking about? Look at verse 12. He says, God those who, patient, who bless those who patiently endure testing and temptations. And it says, afterwards, what? They will receive the crown of life. Well, what is the crown of life he's talking about here? Well, in other places in Scripture, when you see them referring to this, they're talking about this. They're talking about eternal life. They're, they're talking about the assurance of their salvation. What's my reward? Can I give you the youth ministry church answer? Jesus. If you've never been in student ministry or maybe any class before and someone says, hey, I have a question, uh, and they'll ask some question, and when they don't know, if someone gets called out, a kid would always say this, Jesus, because you can't tell them no, right? You can't ever say no. Jesus is not, Jesus is always the answer, right? It always is. The answer in law legitimacy, what is the reward we get? Jesus. The problem is this. For many of us, we have to ask ourselves this question, is Jesus enough of a reward for us? Like, like is that good enough? Or are you like my kids that get done after opening all their Christmas presents and go, is that it? <laughs> hey, don't judge. They got that from me. <laughs> is Jesus enough? Like, here's the reality. If not, I'm going to tell you this. Then you probably don't fully appreciate who Jesus really is. You don't really fully understand who you have in him. He's saying this, is listen, if you endure, if you stick through, you, you do all this stuff, when you get to the end of the road, you will have a reward. You wish your reward? It'll be Jesus. I gave up all this other stuff for this, and you'll say, you know what, it was worth it. I might not have finances, I might not have wealth, I might be going different, but, but at the end of the day, I have Jesus. And there's a peace, there's a joy that comes with it. When I, when I got married to Emily, I gave up all the women in the world. <laughs> I don't come to the end of the world and go, yeah, man, I... Wish I could have got something else in this. At the end of the day, I go through all this and I look and say, hey, listen, this is my, man, it's worth it. 
She's worth it. At some point, you have to come to the same thing. Jesus, is Jesus worth it? Because in reality, look at verse 11. For those who chase other things, look what it says at the very end. It says, the rich will fade away with all their achievements. All these other rewards you think are worth pursuing, at the end of the day, you'll find they fade away. They're like a beauty of a flower. They have beauty in a moment, but the next day they're gone. And you'll be stuck going, where did my life go? Yeah, I got comfort, but what, what do I have now? What's left? So like as Christians, as believers, you need to understand this. When it comes to your faith, you will go through difficult times. It's not a question if, it's not a matter when. I've, I talk to some people, man, I'm just, why is God doing Like, why is God doing this? Because God loves you. And it's hard to understand that, wrap your mind like, because God loves you. And so instead, you have to come to a place and say, man, to pass this test of life, they're coming away, I'm just going to have to be different. I, I'm going to have to be different. I'm going to have to have a different look on these hardships to come away and say, God, you're going to use this. You're going to stretch me. And so if it's still going on, God, you're still grooming me. And I believe, I believe I have everything I need in you. I believe you can do everything in me. You have to have a different source of advice. You have to come to God and say, God, I believe that you're going to tell me what to do, and I'm going to trust you with it. And when you lay stuff on my heart, when I know your word, I'm going to apply it and try it and see what happens from it. And you're God, at the end of the day, I'm going to have a different sense of a reward, and it's you, and you're worth it at the end of the day. And the question for all of us as we conclude is this, do you want something different than what this world has to offer? Because if you don't, can I tell you something? You're going to frustrate yourself. You're going to come to the end of the day and say, God, I went through that, like, what now? And he says, well, it's me. You're like, is that it? Is this, is this what it is? Is this what being Christian is all about? If, if Jesus is not enough for you, can I tell you something? Christianity might not be for you. It might not be your thing. And that's what makes James so difficult, because he tells us the stuff that we need to hear, but we don't want to hear sometimes. And what I love James writes all of this. Can, can I share a different man that had everything and gave it all up for Jesus? It came from a guy who came a little bit later named Paul. And Paul would say this in Philippians chapter 3, and I just want you to listen to what he says. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, he says, I once thought these things were valuable. He's talking about all his accomplishments, all his achievements, everything he has. He said, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless, worthless when compared with the infinite value of what? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded. I've gotten rid of everything else, counting all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and became one with, with him. I no longer count my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. And all I want to do is know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing his in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. At the end of the day, all I want is Jesus. Can I tell you, if you don't want that, you've got a hard road ahead of you. But if Jesus is all that matters to you, listen, if you will live this stuff and apply it, you will come in and go, man, i got the greatest thing ever. I know for a fact many of you right now are going through hardships. I can't even begin. I, there's a reason God hasn't put that on me because he knows I couldn't bear it. And the reason you're going through it because God sees something in you. 
If it's not something you've brought on yourself, which we'll talk next week about temptation stuff, you know what, you're dealing with just difficulties of this life from this world, living in a fallen world. Listen, God sees something you have merit that he wants to stretch, he wants to challenge, and he wants to refine and make perfect, wants to make mature. God believes in you, and that says something about you. And my plea with you is not to give up on him and look and say, God, I trust you. I trust you. As I pray and as Grant comes up and we close in this time together, here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to ask you to go to God and say, God, I'm going to stop asking why today. I'm just going to say, what? What do you want me to do with this? I'm looking for these things. If you're not a child of God, listen, you can ask what all you want, but until you accept Jesus Christ, you're wasting your time. You have no promise. You have no hope. You have no assurance. It comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. And the way you do that, according to Scripture, is you believe in your heart and confess through your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. In other words, you come to point and say, I believe that I can't save myself. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to save me. And if I would simply believe and give myself to him, I will be saved. It's as simple as that. And the rest of your life, you can figure out how to live it out like James teaches right here. So as I pray for you, maybe you need to respond. I'll have myself up here, and I think J.D., one of our elders, will be up here as well. And we'd love to walk you through what it looks like. And so as I pray here in a second, I encourage you to come up, whether it be you need to pray for salvation or whether you just need someone to pray over you because you're going through a hard time and I just need encouragement. Maybe you don't want me to pray for you. Maybe you just need to come to the pillars up here and just pray up on the stage. Maybe you need to bow down in your seat and say, God, I'm going through a difficulty right now and I trust you. Maybe you need to do that, but I encourage you to do business with God. And so let me pray for you. Father God, I love you. I know that you are good. Even in difficult times, I know that you are good. And that you love us. God, I know there's people in the sound of my voice. There's people I just talked to today, I know for a fact, that are going through difficult times or their loved ones are going through difficult times. God, encourage them right now, God. I, I ask that you just help them to feel your presence. Help them to know they're not neglected, they're not rejected, and they're not hated by you. But God, to know that they are loved by you and there is merit to what they're going through. In other words, God, help them to understand that what they're going through right now is not a waste you're refining them into something special. And God, I know their temptation is to ask why. Why, why, why? And God, those are things we may not understand until we stand in glory in your presence, but God, give us the courage to ask what. God, I pray for those who sound my voice who have never asked you to be their Lord and Savior, who have not put their faith in you, God. I pray that today they would have the confidence to get up and come talk to myself or J.D. and say, how do I accept this gift of salvation? God, encourage us to know that while we're not delivered from the world, God, someday you will redeem us from the world and you've redeemed us already inside our hearts. So God, I pray for response is pleasing to you. God, I love you because you're good. I love you because you're faithful. And I love you because you're just, even sometimes when I don't feel it, but I know that you are because your word tells me that. Give me faith, God, to work through those things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As they sing, I encourage you to respond. JD, you'll be over here. I'll be right over here. But please come talk to us if you need to.